Testimony of Jesus When Christ has promised one eternal life, he can know with a surety he has eternal life. Until then, all remain at risk and in jeopardy every hour they are here, see 1 Corinthians 1, paragraph 64. When one knows he is sealed up to eternal life, he has the more sure word of prophecy or the testimony of Jesus. See words of Joseph Smith, pages 201-202, Wilford Woodruff's Journal, Volume 2, pages 230-231, and TNC 86, paragraph 1. These are they who have been told by the voice of God from heaven that they have eternal life. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 7, paragraph 10. To have a saving testimony of him is to become a prophet. It is no wonder, then, that Moses wished all men were prophets. See Numbers 7, paragraph 19. All are invited to get testimonies of Christ and are therefore, also invited to become prophets. What if someone were to declare today that the Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father and the Savior of the world, and that all men must come unto Him or they cannot be saved? 1 Nephi 3, paragraph 24. What if they were to declare in sober words that the Lamb of God lives still? That He had appeared to and spoken with the one making the declaration? Would there yet be those who would hear and repent? Would that message be drowned out by the chorus of foolish and vain things being spoken in the name of Jesus Christ by those who, despite having real intent and sincere desire, have not been given power to declare His words? Would such a message only be another bit of entertainment for the bored and curious to give but passing notice? Could the world be given such a message and warned but fail to see what it is they are being offered for one last time before the harvest is to begin? If so, would we notice? Should someone choose to come, they must come according to the words which shall be established by the mouth of the Lamb. And the words of the Lamb shall be made known in the records of thy seed, as well as in the records of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. 1 Nephi 3, paragraph 24. How must they come? The Book of Mormon suggests it must be through the gate of Revelation. Moroni 10, paragraph 2. Without revelation you cannot obtain the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation 7, paragraph 10. Or, in other words, unless you find prophets who can bear testimony of him, you have not yet found the means for salvation. The whole text of the Book of Mormon comes down to experience after experience, being retold by people who, during their lifetime, had this opening up of the heavens to them and they came into contact with Jesus Christ and recognized who He is and what His role is. The testimony of Jesus is not something that comes from you, as in, I have this testimony, and let me tell it to you. The testimony of Jesus is something that He gives to you as His confirmation to you that you have part in His kingdom. To receive the testimony of Jesus is to receive from Him the promise that He will give you eternal life. The Book of Mormon is filled with accounts of people that had had that experience and that's, at one point, an expected and normal part of the Christian experience. It became very rare, unexpected, and in fact is denounced by many denominations as something that doesn't happen, can't happen, ought not happen. And if you think that you've come into contact with a divine being, then you've been misled because, well, Jesus is busy. He can't be troubled with your lot don't think that you're going to have an encounter with Jesus. However, my view is that Christian salvation is based upon the testimony of Jesus, to you, of your salvation. I also think that it doesn't matter when you live or what the circumstances were. 
if you are true and faithful to Him, you will have that experience. I believe it to be an authentic part of every Christian's life. See also the glossary entry, Prophet. Testing the Spirits Not all spiritual experiences can be trusted to have come from God. True spirits do the following, testify of Christ. Lead to repentance. Are consistent with existing scripture. Edify and enlighten the mind. Are understandable and do not cause confusion. Cause light to grow within. Turn one toward Christ, not men. Never cause pride. Make one a better servant. Increase one's love of his fellow man. Clothe one with charity for the failings of others. Conform to the true whisperings of the Holy Ghost that had been previously received. Leave one humble and grateful for God's condescension. Make one want to bring others to the light. Are grounded in love toward God and all mankind. And lead one to rejoice. On the other hand, false spirits will. Deny Christ. Cause pride. Make one believe he is better than others because of the experience. Contradict the scriptures. Appeal to carnality and self-indulgence. Cause confusion. Lead to ambition to control others. Make one intolerant of others' failings. Seek self-fulfillment rather than service. Appeal to one's vanity and assure him that he is a great person. Bring darkness. Repulse the Holy Ghost. Prevent one from repenting and forsaking sins. Interfere with serving others. And focus on oneself rather than the needs of others. Do not think all spiritual experiences can be trusted. There is no difference between the activities of deceiving spirits today and those in Kirtland, as well as those in the New Testament times. If you follow the Lord you must still test the spirits and only follow those which point to Christ. 1 John 1, Paragraph 18 Even Joseph Smith had to ask God about some of the phenomena going on in Kirtland before he knew which were of God and which were deceiving. There are many unclean spirits who will deceive mankind. Unless one is anchored in what is taught in the scriptures and requires all truth to measure up to that, he or she can be deceived. That is as true now as then. Some people are so thrilled by having any spiritual experience that they accept anything. Lying spirits appeal to one's pride and vanity. God will chasten and require one to be meek and serve both him and one's fellow man. Lying spirits will tell a man that he is some great and mighty person. God will remind him that only he is strong, but he uses the weak things of this world to accomplish his work. No one can take credit but him for whatever is accomplished. Three Witnesses Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, and David Whitmer They claimed an angel showed to them the plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated. Their testimony is in the front of every published copy of the Book of Mormon. In 1835, these three men chose and ordained the first quorum of twelve apostles. Thrones One of the rungs on Jacob's ladder, found in the afterlife, where different powers are fixed. Angel, archangel, principality, power, dominion, throne, cherubim, or seraphim. They may all be called powers of heaven. Times of the Gentiles Joseph Smith was instructed by a heavenly messenger on September 23, 
1823 that the fullness of the Gentiles was soon to come in, see Joseph Smith History Part 3, Paragraph 4. Modern Revelation states that the times of the Gentiles is that time when the fullness of the gospel will come among the Gentiles, see TNC 31, paragraphs 6-7. The times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled in that generation when the Gentiles shall sin against my gospel, and shall reject the fullness of my gospel, 3 Nephi 7, paragraph 5, and they receive it not, TNC 31, paragraph 6. The Lord will then bring the fullness of my gospel from among them. And then will I remember my covenant which I have made unto my people, O house of Israel, and I will bring my gospel unto them, 3 Nephi 7, paragraph 5. Tithing An offering to the Lord. One-tenth of one surplus after all responsibilities and needs have been taken care of. The primary purpose of collecting the tithes and the yield upon it is to bless and benefit the lives of those in need. Assist the poor directly, looking for God's guidance in so doing. Have no poor among us. Help provide for those who need housing, food, clothing, health care, education, and transportation. Take the money the Lord intended for the poor and administer it for the poor. CTNC 173, Paragraph 1 Transgression both sin and transgression are used when describing offending the laws ordained before the foundation of the world. Transgression is used primarily when the offense is done in innocent ignorance. Sin is used primarily when the offense is done deliberately, knowing that an eternal law is being violated. Transgression requires repentance, just as does sin. However, repentance from transgression involves recognition, understanding, and change. Whereas repentance from sin requires sincere soul-searching, confession, and recognition that the deliberate violation of an eternal law is a serious character flaw requiring greater self-control, discipline, and commitment to follow Christ. See also the glossary entry, Sin. Translation And men having this faith, coming up unto this order of God, were translated and taken up into heaven. Genesis 7 Paragraph 19. Even the translated will undergo a change akin to death. See 3 Nephi 13, Paragraph 3. Those born in the millennium will likewise undergo this same experience. See TNC 50, Paragraph 11. Now the doctrine of translation is a power which belongs to this priesthood. There are many things which belong to the powers of the priesthood and the keys thereof that have been kept hid from before the foundation of the world. They are hid from the wise and prudent to be revealed in the last times. Many have supposed that the doctrine of translation was a doctrine whereby men were taken immediately into the presence of God and into an eternal fullness, but this is a mistaken idea. Their place of habitation is that of the terrestrial order, and a place prepared for such characters he held in reserve to be ministering angels unto many planets, and who as yet have not entered into so great a fullness as those who are resurrected from the dead. See Hebrews 1, paragraph 49. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now it was evident that there was a better resurrection, or else God would not have revealed it unto Paul. Wherein then can it be said a better resurrection? This distinction is made between the doctrine of the actual resurrection and translation. Translation obtains deliverance from the tortures and sufferings of the body, 
but their existence will prolong us to the labors and toils of the ministry, before they can enter into so great a rest and glory. On the other hand, those who were tortured, not accepting deliverance, received an immediate rest from their labors. See Revelation 5, paragraph 5. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth, yea, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And their works do follow them. They rest from their labors for a long time, and yet their work is held in reserve for them, that they are permitted to do the same work after they receive a resurrection for their bodies. But we shall leave this subject and the subject of the terrestrial bodies for another time, in order to treat upon them more fully. Though Christ rose again the third day, yet he was not spared death by being translated. God does not take any man off the earth through translation unless they have a calling to minister. The city of Enoch did receive a calling to minister to others. People continued to be translated to Enoch's city right up to the flood. Shem remained through the flood but held a promise that he could join Enoch's people, and later God vindicated the promise, and Melchizedek's people were, likewise, able to flee. See Genesis 4, paragraph 23. The period of translation into the city of Enoch ended at Melchizedek except for only one-at-a-time events relating to dispensations and assignments requiring further work. Moses, for example, needed to return for the events on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he was taken. Elijah was needed for a last day's return to open a corridor between heaven and earth. So he was taken. These were not comparable to the earlier cities being taken into heaven but were specific assignment-related events, requiring them to be involved with later work within the gambit of the assignment given to them by God. Trust in man Reliance on man to save Man's theories, hopes, or vain formulas for finding the path to God. Nephi puts it into two opposing camps. There are only two. There are either inspired teachings, given by revelation and confirmed by the Holy Ghost, or they are man's understanding. The first will save you. The other will curse you. There's no happy marriage of these opposing positions. You cannot have both. This sword cuts both ways and forces you to make a decision. Your eternity will be affected by the decision. So either you find the right way and follow it, or you are relying upon men and will in the end be cursed. See 2 Nephi 12, paragraph 6. See also the glossary entry, Maketh flesh's arm. Truth Knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come, TNC 93, paragraph 8. You can only know the truth by having it revealed to you from heaven itself, see TNC 69, paragraph 29. We must know the truth. The truth informs us how things are now, today, in our current peril. The truth informs us of how things were, revealing exactly what happened, without mythical or political overlay, with its disappointments and tragedies candidly depicted. The truth informs us of the things to come, even if the prophecies and promises dash our hopes, crush our vanity and expose our foolishness. Without the truth it is impossible to repent. In order to take people captive, all that is required is for people to be content with their ignorance. The greatest threat to salvation does not come from teaching false doctrine but instead comes from ignoring doctrine altogether. Substituting platitudes and truisms for careful, 
ponderous and solemn investigation of the deep things of God is sufficient to keep people in the chains of captivity. It isn't necessary for the devil to convince you of lies, only for him to make you content in your ignorance or fearful of the search for truth. 12 Apostles Based upon the New Testament model of Christ's Twelve Apostles, it was an ecclesiastical body formed in 1835. Members were originally chosen and ordained by the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. This quorum was originally equal to the First Presidency, three men, the Seventy, Seventy Men, and High Councils, local bodies of twelve men, all of whom were considered to equally hold the keys over the Church. Upon the death of Joseph Smith, his successor, Brigham Young, changed the way the quorums were organized and made this quorum superior to all others. They are currently considered to exclusively hold all the keys in the LDS Church, and the senior, longest-serving member automatically becomes the president of the LDS Church upon the death of his predecessor. Unbelief As used in the Book of Mormon, it means one does not understand and has not accepted true doctrine. The word unbelief means to accept false doctrine or to have an incomplete and inaccurate understanding of correct doctrine. Unbelief is often used in conjunction with losing truth, forsaking doctrine, and dwindling. The phrase dwindling in unbelief is the Book of Mormon's way to describe moving from a state of belief, with true and complete doctrine, to a state of unbelief, where the truth has been discarded. Miracles end because men dwindle in unbelief. Under the earth. As used in Genesis 4, paragraph 9, this is referring to the cycles of the wandering stars, or planets. It does not refer to the subterranean composition of the earth's mantle. When an object in the firmament moves below the horizon, it is under the earth. Unity. Oneness and undivided. Having the same spirit dwelling in them. Unpardonable sin. All sins shall be forgiven, except the sin against the Holy Ghost. For Jesus will save all except the sons of perdition. What must a man do to commit the unpardonable sin? He must receive the Holy Ghost, have the heavens open unto him, and know God, and then sin against him. After a man has sinned against the Holy Ghost, there is no repentance for him. He has got to say that the sun does not shine while he sees it. He has got to deny Jesus Christ when the heavens have been opened unto him, and to deny the plan of salvation with his eyes open to the truth of it. And from that time he begins to be an enemy. A man cannot commit the unpardonable sin after the dissolution of the body. And he that receives my father receives my father's kingdom therefore, all that my father has shall be given unto him. And this is according to the oath and covenant which belongs to the priesthood. TNC 82 Paragraph 17. The oath and covenant is the Father's word that cannot be broken. It is not something one aspires to but accepts by following the conditions established by God. It is received by an oath and covenant from the Father who can establish eternal covenants by His word, because His word cannot be broken. Therefore, all those who receive the priesthood, and priesthood is singular, there is a single fullness given by the Father, receive this oath and covenant of my Father. This is not about abstractions, quorums, groups, churches, organizations, orders, or associations of men on this side of the veil. 
This is about a direct, covenantal relationship established by the Father with those who have the priesthood. The priesthood is a fullness which He, the Father, cannot break, because if He were to break this once He has made this covenant, He would cease to be God, neither can it, the fullness, be moved. Once the Father has made this covenant and conferred these rights, earth and hell cannot make it otherwise. But whoever breaks this covenant after he has received it, and altogether turns therefrom, shall not have forgiveness in this world, nor in the world to come. TNC 82, paragraph 17. This powerful curse applies only to the few who reject a covenant established directly by God the Father with them. This is not merely an ordination to church office. If a priest of this kind, after being called his son, were to turn away from the Father, he would be in a state of willful rebellion against God who sustains all creation. Those with this priesthood have been in his presence. This is not at all the same thing as an elder drifting into inactivity and disaffection. Those with this priesthood stand in the light of the noonday sun and deny that light. In these circumstances, it is rebellion against knowledge. See also the glossary entry, Son of Perdition.